Hi, I'm Matt Burgess and I'm the host of Demystifying Genetics. Um, today I'm going to talk to the fabulous genetic counsellor Ellie Lynch in this um, return season of Demystifying Genetics. We're going to cover such things as working remotely during a global pandemic um, and other interesting genetic counselling things. So please join us for a really interesting conversation. Hello and welcome, Ellie. Congratulations on being my first guest back in season two of Demystifying Genetics. Thanks, Matt. It's very, very lovely to be back um, and to see you again. Well, not really see you, to speak to you again. Where, where I, exactly I, are you at the moment? Well, it's kind of crazy. Like, um, since my last podcast about two years ago, um, I'm actually living in Princeton in New Jersey in the United States. Wow. What's it like over there? It's funny because at home it's been really quiet all day and really quiet all week. And about half an hour ago, um, we live right in town and some beautiful buskers are playing lovely live music, but it's really loud. So I'm actually sitting (laughs) in our walk-in wardrobe um, right this second and all of the clothes are sort of acting as, um, you know, soundproofing. But, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Princeton is lovely. Um, We're going well, even though the world is kind of a little bit crazy at the moment. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm sitting, I'm sitting at home locked in my bedroom because we're all working from home at the moment because of the uh, the craziness of the world, particularly in Melbourne at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So, can you tell me a little bit about sort of life for you at the moment? Like, you're a genetic counsellor, you're a senior genetic counsellor, um, but you're living in Melbourne and um, it's sort of in the middle of a global pandemic and um, your city has been in lockdown for a little while. So, yeah, how how are you working? Yeah, so this is um, our second period of lockdown at the moment. Uh, so we uh, are all really have been directed to work from home uh, if we can work from home. So I've been working from home actually, it's now July since March. And that's something that as a genetic counsellor, I just never thought it would be possible to do. I was, I just thought there's no way I'd be able to do my job full time from home. Uh-huh. Um, but it's amazing how you actually can do your job as a genetic counsellor from home. So all of um, the appointments, um, people that I've been seeing have been through telehealth. And if we need one of the clinical geneticists or oncologists to, to meet with the patient as well, they dial into that telehealth appointment from the hospital or their homes, wherever they are. Um, and, I mean, there are some technology issues and glitches sometimes, but surprisingly it actually has been working really well Um and I guess demonstrates to me that probably we should have used more of telehealth in the past and we can definitely use it better in the future. Yeah. <laughs> I, re- I remember um, one of our colleagues, um, she was one of the lecturers that I had in genetic counselling um, way back when, when I was a, a student. Um, she did her PhD in um telehealth and that I think that was like about 10 years ago now Elvira and um I think I don't know maybe she just did it a little bit before her time or ahead of her time like it's kind of crazy like there's so many instances where we said oh no we couldn't possibly do that um remotely or online and like like is there any area that you don't 
think is working as well, like in telehealth, or is it kind of just it's just working for everybody? Or no, I I mean de- definitely that there are instances where I think it would be better to see a family or a patient face to face. There have been times when people have been really distressed, um, and I mean I think telehealth where you can see them is better than telephone, um, uh-huh. but but. You know, in those instances, it would be nice to be there with that person rather than than um, you know over over a screen. Um, also, I think you know when there are children that you're seeing where, or even adults where you need a geneticist to examine them, um, it's very hard for geneticists to examine patients over the screen as well. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if that's a part of a consultation that you're doing as a genetic counsellor, that can be quite tricky. Um, but but there's a lot of stuff that we do that actually works reasonably well, I think, over telehealth. Yeah, yeah, okay. And because I know when I met you, um, like we started working together, I think about 10 years ago now, um, you, in our unit, um, you sort of were more focused on cancer and I was in the, the neurogenetics clinic and um, I think recently or more recently you've been doing more neuro stuff. Um I know like with Huntington disease appointments, for example, um, the the rule kind of was it always has to be in person, you know, like that's one area where you would never do a, a phone consult or a, a telehealth appointment. Are you doing that for um, like consultations um, for people with um, Huntington disease or similar conditions? Uh, yeah, I have done. Um, so we had a discussion as a, as a unit about how to approach this. Um, and really we felt that um, because there's no end in sight for this pandemic in Melbourne, um, we don't know when we're going to go be able to go back to offering face-to-face appointments, and we just felt like it just wasn't fair to those patients to keep them waiting. I mean, obviously, people who are at risk of Huntington's disease, this is it's so often such a big step for them to come forward and to contact a clinic and to want to... Um, discuss the option of predictive genetic testing that to be told we can't see you until we can see you face to face we just felt wasn't very fair to those patients yeah so um so yes we have been doing um consultations via telehealth um i think to be fair i think there have been less referrals for huntington disease predictive testing um over this period um but there definitely have been some referrals and there have been some patients um that, that our team has seen over over telehealth. Okay. It's kind of, I don't know, like I think it's just such a, a surreal kind of <laughs> uh, event, isn't it? Like we just never thought we'd be in this kind of situation, but oh, yeah. God. Yeah, it's been, yeah, it has just been such a, just a crazy year. And even setting up like, setting up so that you can work remotely as well, um, you know, the centre that I work at at the moment didn't have um, electronic genetic files, so they had to sort that out, you know, within a week or two so that, <laughs> so that everybody could access the information that they needed from home. And um, kudos to them because they did it pretty quickly. Um, and, yeah, it, I mean, in a way it's actually forced things that probably would have taken years to happen super, super quickly, which will benefit the units over time, I think. Um, but, yeah, it's, 
it's been interesting. And the other proportion of my job, I do um, some project management for a research study, and that that's always been pretty easy to work from home um, because um, you know a lot of what you do is writing papers and things like that. And um, having said that, though, I think you know we used to have a lot of meetings, and now all of those meetings are over Zoom rather than face to face. Uh huh. Oh, cool. You just mentioned so many things there that I kind of want to ask you about. So if I can, I'll try and remember. But I guess number one, um, or something that I wanted to ask you about was, um, I know when we worked together, like one of the, the fun things that we used to do was go on outreach. Um, so we would do outreach clinics. And depending on, on where it was, like we would either drive um, to, you know, like the little country town or we would fly. Um and now kind of with um, the advent of, you know, all of these telehealth appointments, do you think that um, outreach clinics are a thing of the past? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think they're a thing of the past, but I think that they can definitely be um, uh, run better for the patients. I think we'll be able to, I'm sure that we'll be doing more telehealth clinics in addition to those face-to-face clinics as well. I mean, you can't, like I said, you can't. There are some situations where it really is much better to see these patients face to face, and you know, telehealth doesn't replace that. But I think it can complement that. So, um, so there'll probably be a combination of of face to face and telehealth clinics. I actually um, don't know if you know this, Matt. Actually, but in the last like couple of months, I've um, uh, been doing um, some work with the outreach clinic in Alice Springs. Um, in Australia. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so that's just one day a week, something that I've been doing, and um, and it's been interesting talking to the um, the specialists there about there was a lot of referrals to to sort out and about which patients would be appropriate for telehealth and which patients would be better suited to face to face appointments because um, there's obviously um, a lot of Indigenous families in um, around Alice Springs um, who might not have access to technology who, um, you know, might live out in communities um, or be fairly mobile. So so I'm, I'm not sure that, tele, you know, telehealth would de- necessarily be the answer for all of those families. Yeah, I guess that's an important point, like to be sort of client-focused. Um, you know, not everybody has electricity or not everybody has, uh, well, I guess most people have got electricity, but, you know, maybe they don't have access to the internet or, um, you know, sort of um, the technical skills to be able to to dial in. Um, and, yeah, I guess, you know, like with these um, outreach appointments, are they, do people just pick up their, their laptops or their iPads and use it from home or do they go into like a, a community health centre where somebody can help facilitate the appointment? And I guess they're all sort of important things to consider. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think so. I mean, sometimes people can just do the appointment on their phone as well. They can just click on the link. If you've got internet on your phone, they can just pick up their phone Um so it's pretty amazing, but that also poses unique challenges because sometimes, um, you know, people might not be in the right, you know, might not be in a private place or um, might not be where you would normally expect someone to be for a genetics appointment. <laughs> they might be at the supermarket. Yeah. 
I kind of was thinking about that the other day. And, you know, when you make an appointment for somebody to see, um, you know, like a, a specialty like genetics and they go to like a major hospital and they have to actually, you know, take time out of their day, it kind of, um, you know, sets up the appointment and kind of gives an indication of the importance of that. Whereas when you are saying, oh, you'll call somebody, like, yeah, they could be getting petrol or they could be out <laughs> grocery shopping or, and, you know, you kind of, you don't want to be directive and tell them, you know, are you sure, you know, like maybe you shouldn't be doing that. But yeah. um, it's kind of a difficult conversation to have sometimes. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, to be honest, I actually... Because we email them an appointment, you know, an appointment letter with a link to click on at a certain time. In my experience, actually, most people have sort of set aside the time. Some people have been at work and have ducked into a, another room at work. Um, but I know some of my colleagues have had that experience where um, people haven't been, you know, in a particularly private spot. Um, and it makes makes the consultation and the discussion, usually about fairly sensitive issues, a bit challenging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you said at the start of our call that you, you've locked yourself in your, your room. And I know yeah. you have three lovely sons that are, I'm guessing are in the house and hopefully doing their homework. <laughs> yeah. um, how have you spoken to them about COVID? And, um, you know, like, has that been um, a difficult conversation to have? Um, I mean, you know, you just can't escape from it here, right? It's all over the news. It's it's everywhere. So, um, that they kids, you know, kids are pretty resilient, and kids feel, accept things fairly readily. Um, you know, they 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 understand the premise that that you know there's this virus that's very contagious, and that's why we have to wear a mask when we go outside, and that's why we have to wash our hands. Um, the, my older two uh, twins, they're 12, um, they're at the high school now, um, so they, you know, they're old enough to, to have a pretty good understanding of what's going on. My little one is eight, he's in grade two. Um, at the start, you know, it was really hard for him to, to um, understand why he couldn't have his friends over and why he couldn't have his birthday party and... Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but... um. But as time, as the months have gone on, he's uh, also, you know, become pretty accepting of it. And you know, we'll have, we might have the news on in the background or something, and they, you know, the the kids, the kids keep an eye out of, of what the numbers are that day. Where I've always been pretty honest with my kids, and I want them to know that they can ask me questions and that I'll answer them honestly. I don't don't want to hide things from them. So um, that seems to work well with 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 my boys. Yeah, okay. Because I know like sort of, you know, with our training, we like we think about or we're conscious about talking about medical stuff with children and keeping it age appropriate and, you know, how we would sort of frame things. And then all of a sudden there's like this huge medical kind of thing that's happening in the world. And you, I guess you kind of know stuff because you're, you're a parent, but um, I'm just wondering like like the, the themes or the, the things that we think about as a genetic counsellor, has that sort of come in at all or no, yeah. not really? It's... Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think it does. I mean, I actually have been doing also a little bit of work in um, paediatric cancer as well. Um, and, yeah, I think that, that what I was just talking about then sort of applies as well in the setting um, with kids. You've got to 
you're right, you've got to give them information in a way that's age appropriate. But you, what's really important, I think, is that kids know that they can ask questions um, of you and that you will answer them honestly as well. And um, I don't think kids like it when they think that you're hiding stuff from them. Um, uh-huh. I guess that when when we talk to, um, you know, sometimes you might have families that you see who, um, you know, perhaps, for example, there might be some cancer predisposition gene in the family and the parent doesn't want um, to tell the child about a, a reason for a predictive test. Um, and, you know, we encourage parents to, to be open and honest with their kids about um about why they're having testing and depending on their age, you know, that the amount of information that you would give them would vary. Um, mm-hmm. but, it, but honesty is always seems to be the best, best policy in these situations. And also, you know, to say as well that it's normal, it's normal. And when you're told that you've got a health problem or potentially got a health problem, or when you're told that there's like a global pandemic and a virus going around, it's okay to be, upset by that and that's pretty normal to be upset by that um yeah but you know generally things are going to be okay you know we're going to organize screening for the kid who might need it or you know eventually we'll get a a vaccine for this virus and things will pass so yeah i think that you can draw a parallel between them yeah Okay. And you mentioned that um, one of your jobs or what you've sort of been doing more recently is um, project management work. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about or what I'm going through at work at the moment is genetic counsellors um, in sort of non-traditional roles. And I, I don't know if I really like that term, but I think when people think about genetic counselling, they think of clinical genetic counselling. And there's so many different areas where people can use the skills that they've learned in genetic counselling in other areas. And just wondering, like, do you agree with that? And like, how, like, could your job be done by a person that isn't a genetic counsellor or what, what do you think you bring to that role? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, and something that I guess I've thought a little bit about uh, lately and there's been, there've been quite a lot of discussions um, with um, the certification committee and with, um, uh, I can't remember the name of the committee, but the other committee that's looking at these, sort of broadening the certification process for these people working in non-traditional roles. I mean, I think having this the training to be a genetic counsellor does um, help you with um, – well, it has definitely helped me in my role. So I've, I, I work, um, worked as a clinical project manager where we were um, recruiting patients from five different hospitals um, for, well, it was 11 different research studies in, in Geneva. Mm-hmm. And so when you're dealing with um, uh, doctors and specialists and genetic counsellors from lots of different places, you know, communication <laughs> is probably the most um, important skill that you've got. And I guess from, as a genetic counsellor, you're, you're taught to, um, you know, active listening, so listening to people's concerns, um, hearing them out, and then perhaps communicating with other people who might be involved in that particular study about um, the best way to do things. Um, and, yeah, I think, I think having that, that, those genetic counselling sort of 101 skills 
definitely, definitely helped me um, in my role, as well as things like organisation and, um, and you know, understanding the, the genetics and the genomics as well. Um, you know, I'm sure that there are probably other people who could do that project management role, but I think having the experience of knowing what it's like to work in a hospital and the fact that, you know, there are a lot of competing interests and at the end of the day, um, you know, patient patient stuff comes first. You know, you've got a lot of competing priorities and, and you need to prioritise the patient. And so um, having lots of meetings about things might not be at the top of these doctors' priority list. But, um, uh-huh. but um, you know, just I'm just understanding that and being being empathic to that and keeping that in mind when you when you're trying to get a project completed in time, um, I guess is um, important. Sorry, that was all a bit garbled. <laughs> <what I said. laughs> no, 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 that was good. That was good. I, w- I was just thinking, um, you know, when you said to be completed in time, like, do you think that is that sort of like an ethical consideration? Like you've been given money by the government to do it. So, you know, we need to do the research in this particular time with the resources that we have. But obviously, like for some patient or for most patients, the clinically or like you know the treatment or getting better is at the top of their list probably not participating in research like um that must be hard to kind of juggle or sort of you know get that kind of balance right yeah that that's true and um but you know at the end of the day um obviously you know for ethical research you you don't want a patient to be coerced into participating in a study um so you have to the patient's needs and and um, and desires go first, um, but you know it, it just means that when you're coordinating the study, you've got to think, you've got to be realistic about the fact that some people might need more time to make a decision. Um, but you know, recruitment will open, you know, for a period of eighteen months, and those people who want to participate can participate, and those who don't, um, you know, don't have to. So um, yeah, but I mean, obviously. When you get funding for a research project, um, you know there's levels of governance, and you've got to um, you've got to meet the deadlines um, that that have been set. Otherwise, you know you won't complete the study in time, and you won't have anything to report that's helpful. Um, mm. But I mean, our project was about implementation of genomics, and so really we wanted to know what those real world, if, if genomics is going to be implemented into the real world, we wanted to know what they um, what it's like in the real world as well. So we didn't want it to be too artificial. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess, um, you know, like you kind of mentioned writing reports and, um, you know, like one way to demonstrate how well the project's working or not working or what the issues are is to write a report. But um, I guess a, another sort of important um, component to that is that actually like uh, publishing articles. And um, I've seen that you're, you're involved or your name has been on quite a few articles lately. Um, can you tell me about like what it's like um, sort of publishing as a genetic counsellor? And like, do you think that that's an important thing for, for genetic counsellors to be involved with? Or um, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think Sometimes I think as a genetic counsellor, um, it can be hard to have the time to be um, to be involved in research because you're 
patients or, you know, if you're involved in managing a service, there are some things that um, take a lot of time and um, perhaps you need to prioritise. <clears throat> but I think it's really important um, for us as a profession to, to do research and to publish our work because I think we've got a lot of really interesting things um, to say. Um, so, yeah, I definitely encourage genetic counsellors to be involved in, in research and, and, and publications. I mean, I, I, I would never say that that is an area of strength of mine. Um, I, find it, I actually find it really hard um, to do. Um, but, I, you know, and that's why it's really great to be linked in with um, a team of people who, um, you know, all have, can bring different skills to, to the research. So, um, you know, I, um, one of the things that I've been involved in doing lately is supervising um, master's students um, from the genetic counselling who do a research project as part of their, um, part of their training. Um, uh -huh. and, and I think that I've been doing that for a few years now and that, that also taught me a lot about research as well because you'd be part of a supervisor team and as a genetic counsellor, um, there's certain things that you can bring to that team um, that, you know, are important for the student to think about or, and, and, you know, you might have ideas about really great research studies that could be done. But, um, you know, I, I certainly haven't had the training in the methodology, but I've learned a lot from the other supervisors that I've worked with um, uh, who do have that training in methodology. Um, so I actually just have done my first round of coding myself, which was very exciting. Ah, um, <laughs> well done. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, so it was scary, but, um, but it, you know, it was great to learn how to do that. And likewise, working in the big research study that I've been working in, it's really, um, you know, the, the team of people in, in, that, um, in that group uh, have a lot of experience in research and I have just learned so much from, from them as well. Um, so, yeah, I've been really fortunate. Um, I'm really glad that I've done that and, and I've learned a lot. And that's, I guess that's the thing as a genetic counsellor, you just keep on, <laughs> there's so many things that you can do and you just keep on learning the whole time. I just feel like I'm learning stuff every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember, um, you know, somebody asked me what my new job was like and, you know, because I, as you know, I've been working clinically as a genetic counsellor for about 15 years, but now living in the United States, I work for a genetic testing company. And so I'm using those genetic counselling skills or, you know, that experience, but sort of from another um, perspective. And uh, like the other day, I was like, oh, I, I'm just sick of learning. I wish I could just like for a couple <laughs> of days, like not learn anything new, just go to work, do my job. Like, but I think, you know, like part of it, it is good that, you know, it keeps me on my toes and um, it keeps things interesting. And like, I remember like when I started in genetic or when we started in genetic counseling, like they didn't really have like, um, like a molecular way of looking at the chromosomes. And then, you know, all of of a sudden there's like they're doing these arrays and it's like oh my god that just makes me sound so old but you know like things are changing and evolving all the time but yeah, yeah it's kind of makes me laugh yeah that's why yeah the just keeping up with the technology um yeah it keeps you pretty busy you've got to keep on going to meetings and reading and yeah it's um and surrounding yourself with experts who understand it who you can go to when you've got a question yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, just sort of um, 
like I guess another skill that we have um, and that you kind of have demonstrated in our conversation so far is kind of time management. Like it sounds like you're involved with a lot of different kind of areas. But one of the other areas I wanted to sort of just um, talk to you a little bit about was your involvement with the Board of Censors. Mm. And sort of like, you know, how important is that? Like, isn't, uh, you know, like graduating from a, um, a university course, like with a proper qualification, like, is that enough? Or do you think that it, like we do need like this extra level and just wondering what your thoughts are there? Yeah. Um, so they, they actually had the um, ASG AGM this week and um, Jo Burke gave a lecture um, at the AGM and she was talking about certification and um, I think it really made me reflect on um, what she said and the fact that I strongly agree with her that, you know, when you start, when you finish the course, you learn the courses are great and they're really, they are very full um, and you learn a lot, but I don't think that you can really start um, you know, it's just so different when you actually start working um, compared to, to doing it in the course. That's when you're really thrown in the deep end. And, um, <laughs> yeah. And so I just think certification is really important. And um, I think, you know, the fact that you're um, thinking about a, a, a consultation or, um, you know, uh, interactions with your patients um and reflecting on those and and learning from those for um, for future patients that you might see is just really really very important. Um, so I'm like I'm a really strong advocate for certification, and I know that it's a lot of work, and I know that it, it's um you know when when we did it we had to write 20 long cases. It's it's different now, um, but it's it, it's still a lot of work. Um, but you know, I in the on the certification committee, they changed the name now to the certification committee. You know, we always interview people um, at the end um, when they're doing their final um, submission three, um, uh-huh. and you know, we ask them about the process of certification and how they found it. And everyone always says, you know, it was really hard and it was a lot of work, but I'm so glad that I did it because I just learned so much. Um, and I think, I think that's really true. And actually I would encourage people to be on the, the certification committee as well, because I think I'm almost finished my term, um, on the committee, but, um, it's really helped me as well, supervise, um, associate genetic counselors. Um, and, you know, I've learned heaps from all of the cases that I've read and, um, and, you know, people, there are some people out there who are just amazing who can just, yeah. you know, have, have, have done such a good job and have, um, you know, I learn, I learn when I read the cases as well. Um, and it's made me reflect on, on my role as a genetic counsellor. So I'm really supportive of people doing certification and I think it's really important. Yeah, yeah. I am um, oh, remembering back to writing those 20 long cases. <laughs> it was such, <laughs> it was so hard. But, it was a slog, um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I put a lot of importance on it. Like I, it was something really important to me and I was so proud of myself when I, I, I finished. And I think some of my colleagues, um, you know, like 
I guess we do what we place importance on or, you know, what's important to us. And um, that can be different for everyone. But I know for myself, I, you know, doing my, um, I was going to say doing my part two, which is, <laughs> we don't call it that anymore, <laughs> but doing our certification, like it was so important. Um, and yeah, I, um, it was Sunday night for me when the, um, the ASGC AGM was on and yeah. I thought, oh, I didn't I, I don't know, I wasn't planning on attending and then I thought, well, no, I really should. And um, I was chatting to some friends on um, via WhatsApp, you know, like normally I sit next to um, like a couple of friends and we kind of chat with each other. It was really lovely. And because um, it was um, nighttime, I was able to um, to sip a lovely um, Californian Chardonnay <laughs> while I, I t- attended as well. So... <laughs> Oh, that's I thought, so you listened to the lecture as well. It was great, I thought. Yeah, and um, so I thought Jo Burke did a fantastic job and, you know, congratulations to her for, for giving this first, um, you know, lovely, um, you know, talk. Um, and it's, it's named after the first chairperson of the ASGC, Judith Elba, and it kind of made me kind of reflect or go full circle because Judith Elba was my first um, genetic counselling supervisor in my very first genetic counselling job. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's like, oh, I need to, I've been trying to get in touch with her because I would love to have her on as a guest as well. Yeah, she would be amazing. It would be great to hear what she had to say. Yeah. So I guess one other thing before I let you go, um, it's been lovely hearing your voice and your beautiful Australian accent. And, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, as I said, I'm in America and I'm surrounded by Americans and, um, you know, and just thinking about doing our job, but doing it differently. Like you worked um, as a genetic counsellor in the United Kingdom. Um, how was that experience? Yeah, that was great. That was um, about 15 years ago now. I just went over for a year um, and I worked in a cancer hospital um, and, yeah, I was really, um, I'm really glad that I did that when I could before. I think it would be much harder once you've got kids to um, bring with you across to the other side of the world. Um, But I really enjoyed it and I met some amazing people over there um, and also, it also made me appreciate um, that you know we're doing things really well in Australia as well. Um, but yeah, I still, I still, um, you know, occasionally keep in touch with the with the team over there. And um, yeah, it was such a it was a really great experience. And I would encourage people to do that when they can, if 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 they can, when the pandemic is over and we're allowed to leave. <laughs> We're allowed to leave the country, let alone our suburb. <laughs> yeah, or, or leave the state, as the case is in Australia at the moment. Yeah. What's it like in the US? Are you guys all wearing masks? Are you locked down or what's going on over there at the moment? Um, America is such an interesting place. It's kind of interesting that um, mask wearing has become a political thing mm. and not you know, and this is kind of a generalisation, but um, in a lot of states that um, are more sort of um, Republican, um, they kind of, the the rate of mask wearing is much lower, but that's where a lot of the um, cases of COVID-19 are occurring at the moment. Um, and so I live in, in Princeton in New Jersey, which is um, a 
much more of a, a democratic state. So Princeton, even though it's only about an hour from New York, it's it's like a little country town. And about half of the town is made up of the university. But because none of the students are here at the moment, um, you know, it's just a, a lovely little town and it's the middle of summer. Um, so every day it's sort of, um, you know, in the 30s, which is which is beautiful. Mm. Um, and everyone, I would say more than 95% of people um, wear their mask every time they, they leave the house. Yeah. And um, all of the um, restaurants have um, organised tables on the street. Um, so you can sort of dine outside and... Um, oh, sounds yes. so nice. Listening to that in a Melbourne winter <laughs> morning <laughs> where, we, where we can't even go to a cafe, I'm so jealous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 I do miss the food from Melbourne. I, I think that, uh, you know, the cafe culture and the coffee culture in Melbourne um, is much better or like I, it's, it's my favourite, so I, I do miss that. Um, but, yeah, I, I feel like... Um, you know, living at the moment where I am, it's really good. Whereas, you know, my um, my role or my job, um, the headquarters of the lab is actually based in in Texas, and um, it's completely different down there. Um, you know, like there are cases of COVID all the time, and um, yeah, it's crazy. And you know, even just um, sort of on on this topic, um, one of the things that our um, lab has started doing is um, COVID-19 testing. Um, so, you know, we have, I think, three over 326 million people that live in this country and getting access to quick and reliable testing has been an issue. And yeah. now our lab has started doing that type of testing. And it's just interesting to get our heads around it like it's still a genetic test but it's an infectious test and the turnaround time you know like a quick genetic test is normally days or weeks or mm. you know even months sometimes whereas this is hours and yeah yeah so it's kind yeah. of crazy it is yeah but one final question before i let you go um what do you love about your job Oh wow, that's a hard that's a hard question to answer. Um, I I do love my job, and I and I tell a lot of people that that I that I love my job, and I feel really lucky to love my job as well. Um, I think the thing the thing that I really love is um, you know, and that I get a lot of satisfaction from is meeting um, meeting patients and families um, and. I guess getting to know them and um, hopefully being able to support them often during what's a really difficult or challenging time for them. Um, but, um, you know, it, it really, you do feel really fortunate um, that people put their, their trust in you um, during these, these times. And, um, and, you know, if you, if you get a patient um, tell you that they appreciate your help, it just, you know, just does make you feel really, really good and that you've you know that you've done something worthwhile so I I love that part of my job and um and you know I also love working in in teams you know I work in a couple of great teams of people who um are really really smart people (laughs) um, who who I just learn heaps from all of the time as well whether they be other counsellors that I work with or um, geneticists or medical specialists um, who all have um, 
or, you know, people in our team who work in evaluation or education, they just have so much expertise in their areas and, and, you know, are willing to share that. And so learning from them and working, working with these great teams is, um, you know, is, I feel really lucky to be able to do that. And I just love it. And I could see myself doing this for a long time. Ah, beautiful. (laughs) That's just lovely. Like, I think it's really important. Like if you can say that you love your job, you know, um, that sounds great. So thank (laughs) you. <laughs> Thank you Sounds so a bit much. Cliche, but uh, and you know we all have we all have hard days, but um, but overall the positives outweigh the negatives. That's for sure. Yeah. Ah. Uh, well, that's good. Thank you so much for being um my first guest um in this new season of Demystifying Genetics. I've really enjoyed sitting in my closet, um, having a bit <laughs> of a chat with you. Thanks, Natalie. And chatting to you too. Excellent. And I'll I'll talk to you later. Okay. Thanks, Matt. See ya. Thanks, Ellie. Bye-bye.